welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make, with your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash podcast or the Patreon link on our website. Why graduate school? On this bonus make, artist and educator Corey Robinson talks about his decision to go to graduate school and how he chose which program to attend. We have an honest discussion of what can reasonably be accomplished in a graduate program and get schooled by Corey Robinson. All right. Well, welcome to Bonus Make. We're doing a bonus make this time with Corey Robinson. So we're just going to jump right into it. Have Corey talk about his, uh, I guess, uh, his master's that he worked on at San Diego. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I consider that a really pivotal time in my young life and also my career um, for a couple reasons. For one, I sought out graduate school as a way to expand on what to do with the skills I had learned in college. You know, I didn't really know what to do with the things I had learned. And I didn't really want to just retreat back to the family business and do what I had learned as a hobby. I knew there was more out there having been introduced to luminaries like Wendell Castle and Gary Bennett and Wendy Mariama and so, and Tom Lozer and Roseanne Somerson and, you know, just the luminaries of our field that were also educators. I had felt a comfort level with getting to know some of them from going learning about the Furniture Society through my mentor at the time. And um, so I went and visited with a lot of these programs in person and, and just saw a lot of stuff that I loved and ultimately decided to go to San Diego State uh, University, San Diego State University, because it was probably about the, the most foreign thing that I could have done. Um, I'd never been to California. I'd been to the American Southwest Arizona, but to the desert and stuff with family, but didn't know anything about California culture. I was 22. Um, it was beautiful and it seemed like an awesome place to live and Wendy was like the way I've alluded in, in the previous session you know Wendy was very relatable you know and and it's not that the, the faculty at the other schools weren't they were also very relatable but there was something special that I, I found in in my early dealings with Wendy and the care that she really had for her program was obvious the alumni that she was producing were great, you know, doing really interesting things. And the other programs were too. It just Who were some of the alumni before you that that might have tipped you off? Russell Balden, Richard Ford. Oh gosh, yeah. Ford's one of your heroes, Rob. Yeah, yeah, I love his work. I mean the list is escaping me because you was kind of a group of um really talented folks come through the program right before we were looking at a up, you know, I was looking at the application cycle. Yeah. There was a group of really talented people there at the time, Barbara Holmes, Lynn Szymanski. Um, they were all in their second or third year of the program. It was a three-year program, which, which was a big time commitment, too. And, it, you know, as a young person, you don't really care. Times, you got time. But And so I, was, I had the really good fortune of studying with just an enormously talented group of people. And all of us, with, with few exceptions, most all of us have stayed connected to this the realm that we all operate in, you know, the furniture education, you know, Mia Hall, who became the, the director of Penland um, down in your neck of the woods. Um, she was a studio mate, Jason Schneider, Chris Lee, Kim Winkle. Um, these names may not mean anything to, you know, more casual 
observers of studio furniture that listen to the podcast. And a lot of them still hold really important positions in terms of sending students on into the world to do what we do. And I just felt like it was, I also had misconceptions about what my time there was going to be because I had held it in a really high regard. I felt like it was going to be this you know, super intense environment where everybody worked as hard as you did and it was going to be cutthroat. And truth of the matter was, is we were all kind of on equal footing. You know, we had all come from different parts of the country with, with few Californians actually in the program. Most of us were from somewhere else Mm -hmm. and um, we bonded around that and it was great. Uh, You know, we had an amazing camaraderie and I I consider it one of the really important parts of my life. It didn't have a direct link to how I became an educator um, in the beginning mm-hmm. because it wasn't a goal of mine. But as I became really comfortable with the shop environment and more responsibilities came through graduate fellows and working directly with Wendy and her studio with other studio mates of ours, it, there was a point where I was teaching four classes a year while I was also a student uh, at the school. And it, now it seems like I don't know how that was possible. It's, I could, it's almost unmanageable now um, to, to teach the six or seven classes a year that I teach. But um, I just found responsibility at that time in my life. Responsibility was rewarding. You know, it was like it meant work meant something to me. And it was and I worked very hard in the studio. And some would argue I didn't have as much fun as one could have in Southern California when I, while I lived there for almost four years. But I managed to go to the beach every once in a while. Um, the program at the time was one of the one of the places that had been earmarked as kind of a conceptual program. I, I don't necessarily agree with that definition. I, I think it's it was kind of the true image of a furniture design program that is in an art and design school. So the graduate students are recruited from all over the country as part of a big cohort. They just happen to be housed in furniture design, but the expectation is they're making challenging works. Then sometimes that means the work brushes into really conceptual space. Sometimes it was strictly about function and design. And I always like the kind of pendulum swing back and forth. You know, I might find myself making really tightly made cabinet forms because Wendy made a lot of cabinets and there was uh, always an appreciation for me of the interior and exterior environment of a cabinet. I love that uh, a casework evolves as you use it. It's It doesn't really evolve any other way. You, it doesn't evolve by looking at it usually. You have to use it for it to, to fully understand how it kind of becomes what it becomes. Open it, five doors, see what the drawers house. Um, yeah, I mean, that was my first, my first experience as I shifted from more recognizable furniture forms to um, more sculptural forms was a whole series of torso cabinets. And it was all about that, all about that dichotomy between what the outside is and what the inside is in these two different worlds. And that, that the viewer is not a, is a, is an essential party to this because they have to open the doors. They have to open the drawers. They have to interpret what they see. Yeah. And I, I love, I love that kind of, Again, you know, I describe myself as a creative that works really well with a certain amount of framing, you know, and the the framing of being in a furniture program was the fit I wanted. It was the fit I knew from my undergraduate experience. It was the identity I, I still hold. You know, I'm a faculty member in an art and design school, but I uh, my colleagues think of me as the furniture guy. 
I, I think of myself as maybe a little bit broader spectrum than that, but I'm, I'm comfortable with their definition too, because it allows me to, to do what I do in a framing. And that may be for some that hear that, that may sound too narrow, but it's, it's always been a, something I find as comforting or st- a place I can build strength. And so, I, I mean, I love the San Diego state program. The time we were there because there was a lot of us for one, there was 13 graduate students at one point between the first, second and third year cohort. And that was a lot of us to be focusing. I mean, I might have 13 undergrads now in my current program and we had 13 grads together. And, um, and I think that, Density also forced us to be a little more competitive than we would have been normally. I, I always say to my students, you're going to learn more from each other than you're ever going to learn from me. And chances are someone in the room is going to intentionally or unintentionally force you to do better than you would do on your own because you friendly competition with them or at least you have a barometer with them. And I think with so many of us in the room, we were all able to learn a lot from each other. And it was just a really special window to be in the program it was the best fit for me at the time. And so, uh, you know, pursuing teaching professionally wasn't really my goal. You know, I know that there's many people that seek the tenure track appointment and, you know, spend years in the adjunct title with the hope. And and I fell into it with a little different um, demeanor. I, I didn't see myself as holding the temporary title that I have now for a long period. And I evolved that and I stayed, I've been here 18 years I think they hired me at a young age to to sort of temporary fill a hole that they had in their faculty and my credential of being published at a young age and being part of the San Diego state kind of fraternity, if you will, sorority, if you will, was my credential, you know, and then I've invested a lot of my career in teaching. And so my identity nationally is really more right now, probably more known for my teaching than my own work. But one thing I like about academia is, regardless how busy you become doing other things, just because you have other things on your plate, it doesn't rob you of your creativity. You know, you, you always maintain your identity. And so kind of, I feel like I'm in a window where I'm actually revisiting some of that. I don't want to call it naiveness, but the unknowingness that I had when I was in grad school with this new work I'm making. Oh yeah. It's great energy. Yeah. You're keeping that going. You find you find the energy because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Um, well, and that's probably a key part of, of what you've learned in an educational environment is to be open to the unknown and obviously not to denigrate your role as an educator because you're exciting the next generation. And there's a, and I think it's really cool that you can draw your lineage back. You know, you can draw your lineage back to Wendy, who's created some and you know has been an instrumental in the role of some just incredible artists but also incredible educators as well yeah and and, and before that you know my mentor phil um tenant worked with wendell castle directly when when they were still in new york and so i've always had kind of a fondness for both of those luminaries of the field um of course very different works in, in in terms of what their careers have have represented but um you know, I feel lucky too. You know, I, I don't know my own family genealogy as well as I know the genealogy of furniture genealogy. I mean, I, I follow my my furniture genealogy too. You know, having I intentionally chose Wayne Rabb because of his relationship to Doug Sigler and Wendell Castle and Tay Frid, and mm-hmm. you know, it's just it's cool. It's this big web, this big family that we're all involved in one way or the other. It's all it's all good stuff. <laughs> No, it's great stuff. And I think that that 
I think there's some of that that's changing though, unfortunately. And I, yeah, I you had alluded to that and yeah, earlier less and less interest in the, the genealogy of why it was important that I studied where I did and the knowledge that I have is unique to pass along. I find that students are just so consumed with probably the anxieties of being a young person. Truthfully, I didn't, I didn't have those anxieties. It was just sort of everything was embraced at, at full speed. And I think there's a lot of anxiousness around the cost of education, you know, the value of what they're learning versus what they're going to do with it. And I, I think they should be anxious about it. But I, I was you know, lucky enough to, to work in environments where it was really more about let's not worry about that stuff. Let's worry about what, you know, let's have a critical conversation about the work you're making and why it's either good or bad. And, you know, and um, I still try to really bring that to the table. I think the students joke, you know, about my review process, like have, have they had a real critique from me? Because I'm, I'm honest, you know, I, I spend a lot of time culturing the object right alongside of them for weeks on end. But at the end of the day, I can still be very critical of the work they're doing. I think that is a direct descendant of studying at such a strong graduate experience for me. Right. You know, I, I think of this podcast as, as hopefully playing a, a very teeny tiny role in the oral history of, of uh, woodworking and furniture. Yeah. You know, now that we've had a couple of Wendy's students, and of course, we all recognize Wendy's role. Yeah. And at minimum, if your listeners don't know her work, they should they should uh, at least look her up and absolutely uh, reference because it's the work has evolved and, and moved in and out of studio furniture to works that are really politically and socially Motivated and motivated to tell stories of the Japanese internment to endangered wildlife to more currently swinging all the way back around to design and in the most contemporary work she's doing. So I encourage the listeners to to understand her as a contemporary that's still working. Well, uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Corey, and thanks for telling us about your experiences at San Diego State. Thanks. Why make? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whymakepodcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.